Hi, I'm Yusuf Dal, and when I was 18, I was convicted of selling drugs. For the past three years, I've had difficulty finding housing because it is legal in the United States to discriminate against individuals that have a past drug distribution conviction on their record for life. It doesn't matter if it was a hard drug like heroin or a drug that's now legal or partially legal in many states across the country like marijuana. The Thurman Amendment was introduced to the Fair Housing Act in 1988 by segregationist Strom Thurman, and it's since been used to deny housing to all people. But because people of color are disproportionately jailed for drug charges, we are affected more. My goal is to overturn this amendment to start an end to housing discrimination that unfairly targets people of color. If you would like to join this movement, please visit ThurmanAmendment.org to learn more. A message from the Fable and Folly Network. Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now you'll start to see Fable and Folly Network shows are offering bonus content to all existing and new supporters. Find exclusive new episodes from shows like Where the Stars Fell, The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, and Civilized. Plus, early access to new episodes of Midnight Burger, all still entirely ad-free. Omniverse. Hey, this is Kat. And Jess. You know, Mother She Wrote is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. So please, consider supporting our work on Patreon. You'll get early ad-free episodes of this show and all the storytelling podcasts we create. Head to patreon.com forward slash Omniverse Media to chip in and join our community of world-saving wonderkind. Oh, and heads up, this episode contains brief mention of death and gang-related gun violence. Please use your best judgment when listening and take care of yourself. Love you! mysteriously from their home in 1908. Two years later, suddenly as he left, George returned alone. Once a renowned journalist, he became a recluse and an inventor, studying strange energies. He never told anyone where he'd been, what he had done, or what became of his missing wife. It happened in this house, in the quiet town of Podunk. George and Maria's children returned home from school to find their house empty. Their parents vanished without a trace. 
This was the last in a series of strange happenings preceded, they say, by a dark shadow hovering at the summit of distant Mount Itoi. Ninten, what did I tell you? Uh, uh, Mom, I, uh, uh... I don't want you watching our family be slandered on TV. But everyone else will. They're going to be talking about us. And like always, you're going to ignore them, young man. But... Mom, what happened with great-grandpa? Why won't you talk about it? (sighs) Because there's nothing to say, Ninten. All you need to know is that he didn't kill your (sighs) great-grandma. And that it's bedtime. Now come here and give me a hug. (sighs) I love you, Ninten. Now, scoot. But... Friday, April 1st, 1980. Dear diary, I don't get it. Mom talks to me about everything, but she won't talk to me about this. She's been so weird lately, and it's been worse ever since that TV crew tried to interview us. I've never seen her so mad or heard someone say, mind your own beeswax so threateningly. It sounded like a cuss. All she'll say is that great-grandpa George didn't kill great-grandma Maria. But she won't say a word about the other stuff people say. Like how he was investigating a bunch of disappearances and weird stuff happening around town when they both disappeared. How when he came back, his hair was all white. And the cloud. I've seen her watching the cloud over Mount Itoi. A big dark cloud hovering at the top just like people say happened back then before everything when I ask her about any of it she says I'm going to give myself an asthma attack but I'm not scared I just want to know I know she knows something she looks really worried when she looks at the cloud but last time I asked her about it she said it was probably the TV show using a smoke machine to spook people whoa hey Okay, so, uh, my lamp attacked me. It was hovering in the air. It unplugged itself and came at me. It wrapped its power cord around my wrist, but I grabbed the cord and I smashed it up against the wall. Then everything in the house started vibrating. I heard Mimi and Minnie screaming. I ran to help and they were being attacked too. The doll that belonged to Great Grandma Maria had Mimi pinned against the wall. I pulled it off her and bashed it against the floor. And then this music box started playing inside the doll. That song Mom used to hum at bedtime. And everything stopped moving. All the stuff that was floating fell on the ground. Gosh, this is going to be a lot for Mom and the twins to clean up. I feel bad skipping out, but, well, this is going to be my last entry for a while. It's 
All kind of a blur. Things happened pretty fast. Mom was freaked out, and then, out of the blue, Dad called. It was like he knew when we needed him. It would have been even better if he'd just shown up here in person. But anyway, he, he called what happened a poltergeist. It's like a big paranormal disturbance where stuff moves around like it's being controlled by something else. Just like what great-grandpa was investigating. But that's the other thing. It's all happening like it did back then. Mom had hoped it wouldn't come to this. But she and Dad told me everything. It's true that no one knows what happened to great-grandma Maria. Or where they disappeared to. But great-grandpa spent the rest of his life studying something called psychokinetic energy. Dad called it Psy for short. All that stuff about me that mom told me was special, but I should keep it to just the family. Like being able to hear what animals are thinking and sometimes people too. Or that, that time all the silver were bent when I got angry at dinner. That's these powers that my great-grandpa was studying. It has something to do with all of this. It's like a defense. Something to make sure that what happened before doesn't happen again. So dad said, it's time for you to go on a little adventure. <laughs> Mom's worried, but also she looked really proud. Like she knew this would happen someday. The stuff that made me different from everyone else is why it's gotta be me. Mom's always told me to trust my gut and she's right. Sometimes I, I just know things. Like, I'm scared. I mean, I'm a kid about to leave my home to stop. I don't even know what it is. But I know that I'm going to walk out the door. I'm going to find what's doing this. And I'm going to stop it. I have great grandpa's diary now. It's up to me to protect my family. And I'll mess up any appliance that tries to stop me. Writing all this took longer than I thought. I've got to go, but... Um, Mom? Mimi? Minnie? Dad? If you're reading this, I love you. I hope you're okay. Dear Mother, Hopefully, by the time you receive this letter, Podunk will have been saved by yours truly. But in the meantime, Mom, please don't go outside. Things are really weird out here. People's brains are messed up. Mr. Patchouli, the hippie who sells those bracelets at the farmer's market, he attacked me. And the birds and stray dogs? I, I had to fight some of them. But, uh, great-grandpa was right. The psychokinetic energy, I, I can feel it. When someone's not right, I can kind of hypnotize them, make them fall asleep. And when I get scraped up, I can make my wounds heal a bit. It's like I'm talking to my body and asking it to stitch itself back together. And I think I'm a government employee now. I'm not sure. Uh, I met Mayor Goodman. I heard he was 
looking for a brave man. So, since I'm a professional adventurer now, I went to City Hall. I leaned on my bat, looking real cool, and said, Mr. Mayor, I'm your man. I think he was really impressed. My friend from school, Pippi, you know, the, the tomboy with braids, she's missing. Mayor Goodman heard she was in the cemetery and told me I'd be a hero if I brought her back home. By the time you get this letter, maybe I'll be on TV for having saved her. The thing is, though, Mom, uh, I don't want you to worry, but I'm, I'm pretty scared. Uh, I saw a dead person today, and I, I know you told me not to talk to strangers. I just kind of need to now, you know, for clues. Um, well, there was this skinny guy who started talking to me, and before I knew it, he was clawing at me with these long nails. He was cold, and he smelled like dirt. It was a zombie. I mean, a real zombie. People were saying around town that the dead were coming back to life, and I thought, well, maybe they were a little loopy like everyone else, but it was real. I fought him, and when my bat crashed into his head, he was all brittle and his whole body turned to dust. This didn't happen when great-grandpa and grandma disappeared, right? I think it's really serious this time. Like, whatever happened before, that was just a test. And this, this is the beginning of something really serious. But I've got this feeling, like, I'm not alone. I know you and Mimi and Minnie and Dad are here, but there's other people too. Maybe other people like me out there. And I'm scared, but... Great-grandpa sacrificed a lot so I could be here. I'm not gonna let him down. I'm not gonna let you down. And I'm not gonna be like great-grandpa. He pushed his family away. Me? I miss you already. And I'm gonna write you every step of the way, Mom. And I promise I'll visit as often as I can. When things get tough, I can hear you. Like, when you're helping me with my homework, but won't give me the answer. Or when you let go of my bike for the first time. I'm out there on my own, teetering, but you say, you can do it, kiddo. And I can. Love, Ninten. Welcome to Mother She Wrote, a travelogue diary through the strangest, most thought-provoking, most heart-rending video games ever made, the Earthbound series, as it's called in English-speaking countries, and Mother, as it's called in Japan. This is the story of the first game in that series, Earthbound Beginnings. I'm Kat Blackard, just a small-town girl, fighting wildlife in a lonely world, <laughs> and with me is my simply smashing co-host, Jessica Mudd. And by wildlife, I assume you mean the extremely dapper crows, bats, and other critters roaming around Podunk. Well, yeah, and uh, Wally the Farmer. That guy is a real animal on a Saturday night. Or a uh, Friday afternoon, as it turns out. I mean, seriously. 
One moment you're just a kid relaxing in his bedroom and the next your house is shaking, dolls and furniture are attacking you and your neighbors are turning into zombies. School's out forever. (laughs) If you haven't listened to episode zero, I'd highly recommend it. We discuss a broad overview of the series, the release dates, the fan culture behind it, as well as our own relationships with these games, which might help with the context of what Jess and I are about to discuss here. Maybe, kind of, sort of, who knows. But it'll give you a full perspective behind the scenes beyond just the story that appears in the game. The first thing that I'm very excited to address here because we haven't talked about it yet. Jess, you've played Earthbound before, but now you've gone back and started playing Earthbound Beginnings. What do you think? Well... Let me just start off by saying that I was very impressed by the level of complication and polish, I guess I can say, in this game and how much it resembled Earthbound, how much of Earthbound came from Earthbound Beginnings. I was shocked to see that level of complexity in an NES RPG just because the other games that I'm comparing it to are like Final Fantasy and Dragon Warrior, games that I played back on the NES. And to see something that very closely resembles a Super NES game was really, it it caught me off guard. I was not expecting that. The overall level of presentation, the, the music, the graphics, the sound effects, everything just, it seemed like it really kind of reached a level that was vastly superior to a lot of other NES games that came out around that same time. Now, I know that Earthbound Beginnings is sort of, they've refined it a little bit. They did a translation for it, an official translation, and they added some quality of life improvements to it as well. But I don't think they really changed any of like the the graphics or music or anything like that. Well, they did censor some of the graphics, but they didn't change the music. The game that you've played in 2022 is the game that was translated by Nintendo of America in the late 80s. That is just wild to me. It really is. Because Earthbound came out in the United States in 1995. And uh, the first Mother game came out in Japan in 1989. And there's so much that is advanced about Earthbound Beginnings that I just, I was really impressed by it. Which is kind of ironic because a lot of the criticisms that I had about Earthbound revolved around the user interface and the gameplay and some of the the things that just sort of like seemed to bog it down at times. Uh, The amount of grinding that was required to sort of level your characters up, (laughs) navigating through the menus, the limited (laughs) inventory. And uh, it's like, here I am like, oh my gosh, it's all the exact same on the Nintendo. And this is fantastic. Uh uh How did Uh they do this? All those things that you just said and worse in this game. But now, but because of this historical context, you're applauding it. <laughs> I know. It's bizarre. Here we are. But here we are. So maybe it's because I pl- I've played Earthbound already that I sort of intuitively understand how all this works in Earthbound Beginnings. And so I don't find it as daunting. The, the learning curve is not as steep. But just even some of the basic tropes of how you interact with the world, the fact that you talk to your dad through the telephone or that your mom, you, you come back and talk to her and, you know, she makes you dinner and then sends you to bed and that's how you restore your health. The fact that those sort of tropes were established in this game and carried through to Earthbound was really stunning to me. 
Yeah. And, you know, the people who were localizing this game for English speaking audiences, they thought it was going to be the next big thing because role playing games were huge hits in Japan. They didn't move the needle in the States. Nintendo America at the time thought maybe Earthbound could do it. But then they lost interest. They decided it was like too much of an expensive risk to bother marketing it or whatever. But they did already spend a lot of money on it. So it was a strange thing when they pulled the plug on it. Because it, in that context, it either would have been another expensive flop for role-playing games or it could have changed everything. I mean, I guess it would have been an expensive flop. I mean, they already did all the work. The game was developed. They did the translation for it. All they had to do was just print the cartridges. Uh, and... They had to market it, though. They didn't spend any marketing money yet. How much did they really market Earthbound? A lot. They spent so much money marketing Earthbound and done by a bunch of people who had no idea what they were doing. They didn't know how to sell that game. I mean, gosh, I was a gamer. I was a big gamer in the mid-90s, a huge gamer. And I, the first that I ever learned about Earthbound was in Super Smash Brothers. So how do they spend that much marketing on it and not reach somebody like me? You don't remember opening GamePro magazine and seeing that scratch and sniff ad like that said, like, in big letters, this game stinks? No, I don't remember that. And I had game <laughs> and I read Game Pro religiously. So I don't know. Something about it just didn't land. Uh, clearly. I mean, they spent a lot of money and you didn't know about it. So clearly they failed. And even if, even if you had known about it, you might not have thought, I want to play this game, which is the case for other folks. I don't know. Maybe I was just already inundated with other other game media or something. Because I can't really explain it. I was very in tune with gaming culture. And the, the Super Nintendo is my favorite console of all time. So it's like, how did I miss this? I don't know. If they were spending a lot of money marketing that game, it was probably not well, well spent no, or well done. <laughs> it was tragic. It was truly tragic. But that's okay, because now I can be dazzled 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. Earthbound Beginnings. We are going to make a lot of comparisons to Earthbound because that is the game that the world over more people have played. And here's a comparison I like to use uh, a lot, uh, an analogy. Earthbound Beginnings is to Earthbound as Star Fox is to Star Fox 64. That is, Star Fox 64, beyond all the stuff about it that's new and flashy, is just a remake of Star Fox. It's the same plot, there's just more stuff. And that is really similar with Earthbound Beginnings, except that it's not a remake. There's many things that are similar. There are many, like, patterns to it. You know, like calling your dad on the phone to save the game, using an ATM to get cash, talking to your mom. There are many, 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 many similarities. But the core plot is different. It is a standalone story that actually does inform and provide additional context for the events of Earthbound. Interesting. So this is very much the first game in the series. This is very much the beginning of a story. All right. So let's talk about what happened in the game. So it kind of opens up with this text intro that says 80 years ago, there was a couple named George and Maria who suddenly disappeared for two years. George comes back, but Maria is still lost. And it says that George began a private study or uh, research or something like that. But it doesn't really expand on that. 80 years later is the beginning of Earthbound Beginnings. It's kind of where we, we pick up. They don't like explicitly say it, but I'm guessing that the, the little boy, the main character that you play as, is the great-grandson of George and Maria. And the private study that George was engaging in is 
the study of this, these like psionic abilities. Correct. That the child has. It's weird how they both say it in a lot of different ways, but they also don't explicitly put that together for you, even while providing all this information. The game gives you an opening crawl with this story that is really, really, really important to the plot of the game. Yeah. But then it doesn't come back into the story again until much later. And as it's being seeded, it's only when you're really, really paying attention to it. You have to do a lot of legwork to put it together. And this is important to exploring Earthbound Beginnings because Earthbound Beginnings as a game is impressionistic. It is as big a game as Earthbound in terms of the scope of what it was trying to say and do. But because of the technological limits of the game itself, you only get fragments of it. It implies a great deal, but there's two pieces of media that exist outside of it that help give it the full expansive nature that Earthbound has. And that's a book that was published by Ape, Shigesato Itoi's company that produced Earthbound, called The Mother Encyclopedia. And then also there's a musical album that a lot of the songs from this game have lyrics, have full orchestral treatment. And those two things together explain the scope of what this game was in the minds of its creators and also possibly in the minds of the Japanese audience that received it. It was a hit. And you happen to have a copy of that book, right? I do indeed, yes. This book is in Japanese with one notable exception, but it does have a lot of pictures, which are photographs that really help ground the way you're meant to perceive what's happening in the game. Wow. But also the encyclopedia has been or is in the process of being translated currently. There's a website where someone named Kenisu is translating the Mother Encyclopedia. We'll link to it on the show's page, and it's been really invaluable. We'll be reading from it in this episode. All right. So one of the first questions that I have was after we did this sort of like intro story thing, it has you go through and name the characters. Mm -hmm. And I, I usually like to just accept the default names for characters in RPGs so that when I'm discussing them with other people, I can just use the names of you know what they're normally called in the story. I tried to just like accept, you know, the default or whatever, just do whatever it wanted. It didn't seem to let me do that. So I ended up putting in my own character names. There are default names, but they don't exist within the game itself. Maybe they're in the instruction booklet or something. The, so the, the little boy's name is canonically Ninten, right? Yeah. Okay. But I would have no way of knowing that playing the game. Right. So how do you know that the, the character's name is Ninten? Because of all the material surrounding it. For example, in the Earthbound Encyclopedia, it says, like, your name is Ninten. But then it also says, or you could choose another name. That's fine, too. All right. So I named the main character Tom. Just a great name. I know it's going to be getting, it, it will get confusing if I'm referring to Tom while we're, we're talking about this. So I feel like I should probably just refer to him as Ninten going forward. That's the least confusing path forward for us, yes. All right. The next character that I named was the girl character, and I named her Rachel. Her name is Anna. Anna, okay. And I swear, I'm I'm literally thinking about just going back and replaying the first section of this game <laughs> just so I can name them properly, because otherwise it's really going to get confusing. <laughs> All right. The other little boy that I named, uh, I named him Stanley. So what's his actual name? Lloyd. Okay, I'm sticking with Stanley. <laughs> Lloyd, okay. And then finally, the big muscle-bound dude with the sunglasses. I named him Bruce. Your name selections are impeccable. I love them. His name's Teddy. Teddy, okay. Yeah, maybe I'm just going to stick with my own uh, character names. I mean, you did a great job. 
thank you. Well, but what was your favorite food? My favorite food? Oh, yes, of course, because you got to put food. Well, my favorite food is pizza. So that is, you know, what I put in. My favorite food, as we discussed in episode zero, is also pizza. However, I was so charmed by how many uh, letter slots you get to, to I mean, because like, you know, Nintendo games, older NES games are notorious for like not giving you long spaces to like, you know, insert in names and stuff. But they, they gave you so many characters. And I was like, wow, so much, so much real estate. I know. I wonder if I could fit in Okonomiyaki or as they would call it in Ranma one half Japanese pizza. Fantastic. <laughs> and and it fit exactly. Wow. But the default favorite food is prime rib. Prime rib, okay. But you wouldn't know that unless you read the supplemental material. Exactly. So, you know, is that flawed? Yes, it is flawed. <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure that there's another video game from this era that does this. Another video game that has so much supplemental material that expands canonically what is in the game and helps ground it. That's highly unusual. All right. So after I named these characters, I started off in my bedroom, uh, like I said, and uh, I, I just kind of experimented around a little bit, kind of learning the controls. So you're telling me that the run button was not in the original version of this game? Nope. Wow. Can you imagine? And you know what? I never used it again after that moment, after after discovering it. Really? I remembered. Yeah. Wow. I don't know. I guess I was just taking in all the scenery. But, um, you are pretty chill. I also noticed that you didn't set your battle screen text speed in the options menu. Wait, there's a... Oh, you can do that? You can make it go much faster. Oh my gosh, yes. I need to turn that on. <laughs> okay, thank you for telling me that. That's very good to know. So, I, But I, as soon as... The moment I tried to step out of my bedroom door, the first thing that happens is my lamp jumps off uh, and it attacks me. Like... Okay, this is this is a way to start a game, and and so I had to I had to defeat my lamp <laughs> to walk out the door. It immediately makes a statement. It says like, "Hey, this game takes place in modern times. Now you're fighting a lamp, and like, and it doesn't explain why until the event is over. Yeah, and your dad over the phone posits that it maybe was a poltergeist. When you defeat two lamps and a child's doll, it says the phenomenon has stopped for the moment." And there was a melody that was inside of the doll as well. And Ninten remembered that. That's right. He did. Which I'm glad he did because I didn't. <laughs> Even though I listened to it twice. But this also brings me to my favorite song of this first uh, session of playing through. And that is the music while the house is shaking. That was a banger. That was, a, <laughs> that was some rockin' music. And, you know, talking about the musical capabilities of the NES, I was like, this is this is fantastic. There was a lot of great music in this first session of playing through the game. But that one was really like it. I was like, you know, I was rocking out there for a little bit. The uh, the music in Earthbound or the first two Earthbound games is uh, by Keiichi Suzuki and Hip Tanaka. And they are really amazing composers. Uh, Keiichi Suzuki is in a band called Moonriders, and Weirdos made this music. <laughs> and it, and that it, it shows. Really, all of Earthbound is, is kind of like outsider art in a kind of weird way. These are all people who are professional artists outside the medium of video games figuring out how to do video games. And it shows. Like, nothing about this is normal. Fantastically absurd. <laughs> yeah, it's so much cooler for it. All right, so uh, after <laughs> expunging the poltergeist from the house, I guess, I walked downstairs and 
uh, does Nintendo have two sisters? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he has two, two twin sisters. Two twin sisters. Okay. So his other twin sister was downstairs, and his mom was downstairs, kind of guarding the door, uh, because I guess she didn't want you to walk outside until you had talked to dad on the phone, and. This was when my favorite moment of dialogue uh, happened during this first playthrough. And that was when mom said, I wish your dad were here now. Maybe. Right. Like, what does that mean? Yes. And, you know, it's like, okay, I, well, maybe I wish your dad were here. But, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe not, not sure about it. It's like he might just make the situation worse. <laughs> I, I have so many questions about that translation. I don't know what the answer to it is because they, they could be two unrelated lines. It could be like, I wish yeah. your dad was here. And then like she starts having a thought like maybe he'll come back or maybe it was a poltergeist, you know, like yeah. it may, maybe it could mean a lot of things. But according to this book, Ninton's dad left when he was five years old on what he assumes is like a business trip or something. So the twins were born, Ninton's five. Immediately following that, father would end up going to some faraway place, probably job-related. Like, that's all you know. Probably job-related. You know, he still calls. Yeah. He still, like, has a regular relationship there, but your dad's a phone. Like, that's dad. And that stays consistent through Earthbound as well. Yeah. And what that means and what it says and what it is talking about is the subject of constant fan discourse. Constant fan discourse. Yeah, I mean, like, the mystery of Ninten and Ness's dads and, like, who they are, what them being gone all the time means, what their relationship is, what it is they're doing, that is a source of, like, speculation. Like, what does it mean meta-contextually? What might it mean actually in the plot of the game? Got it. I see. So dad tells me that there are some items in the basement that could be beneficial to me, but he doesn't remember where he left the key, so... That's the first thing that I need to do is just to find that key. And it just so happened to be on the collar of the dog who was outside that I went up and, and said hello to. Uh, and I misread the text when I was playing through the game because I thought it was saying that you can't talk to animals. And I was like, you, like you, there's this dog that's walking around two legs. You're like, seriously telling me that you know I can't talk to this dog or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, I understand now that you actually can talk to animals and... The dog seems very friendly, and he had the key around his, his collar. So There's a lot of interesting things about Ninten. It explicitly states, essentially, that Ninten is telepathic. The only psychokinetic ability that you have early on in the game is telepathy, and you can talk to different species. So you can talk to your pet dog, Mick, and he tells you where the key is. And I really, I love that. Something about Ninten having that power makes me think about Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. And I feel like even though it's not explicitly stated... The Beach Boys do have a presence in the Mother series, and I feel like this idea of a psychic child talking to his household dog feels like maybe from that same cultural fabric as Good Vibrations. So then I took the key inside, I unlocked the basement door, and I went down there, and I found a plastic bat, GGF's diary, which I assume was great-grandfather's diary. Correct. And then also some bread. Uh, basement bread. Which... If it's been down there for ten or for five years, you know, because you know, if Dad didn't remember where he left the key, and he's been gone for five years, then that bread's been down there for a while. Well, I'll tell you what. As soon as I left my house, that bread was gone because I uh, I fought a crow. First thing the crow did was took my damn bread. <laughs> oh, those thieving crows! 
Well, you know what? He can have the basement bread. I want to do an aside about the bread because the bread is an interesting item. It is both a life recovery item. You can eat it, but you can also use it. What? You can leave a trail of breadcrumbs and then return to where you came from using the bread. What? Really? Yeah. Uh, so what, like you, you like create a set point with the bread and then like you go somewhere else and then you use it again and it's like, you know, you just like zip back to it? Well, it's been uh, a long time since I've played the game and I'd love to tell you how the bread works, but unfortunately the crow took it so I haven't <laughs> used it again. <laughs> well, that'll be an experiment for a future game session. So I'm looking forward to figuring out how bread works. <laughs> Although, I don't know, the, the crow may have taken mine as well. The crow stole something from me. Uh, Ninten's 12, by the way, so his dad's been gone for seven 12, years at okay. this point. Wow. All right. Seven-year-old basement bread. We can do better, and we do do better. <laughs> but don't ever say our dad didn't give us anything. So I set out uh, and then immediately got attacked by a hippie, which also had some really good music. That hippie was rocking. And he tried to use a bullhorn to, to trick me into thinking that my mother was calling for me. This is one of the things that I love about the mother games is that the enemies that you fight, sometimes they'll just do nothing. Sometimes they will take an action that hurts themselves. It's really kind of random. And it always has like very interesting flavor associated with it. Like the hippie's bullhorn. The battles are text-based, but they're all really character-driven. Yeah. Like, none of these creatures exist in a vacuum just to be a punching bag, exactly. Like, the Mr. Baddies who you encounter later on. Mr. Batty gets confused. When Mr. Batty gets confused, Mr. Batty can hit himself. Yeah. And that's so strange. You have to deal with these, like, eccentric entities that don't behave in ways that you can necessarily anticipate unless you figure it out. And Mr. Batty insists on an honorific. <laughs> that's true. Um, the hippie is my favorite enemy of this section of the game, uh, for, for the reason specifically of the bullhorn saying that your mother's calling you, <laughs> but a, a runner up is the crow and the zombie gangster. But the thing about both those characters is both those characters were censored in the uh, U S release. So they're much cooler enemy designs in Japan. The, the zombie gangster is covered in bullet holes, like bloody bullet holes. Wow. And the crow, first of all, the crow's wearing high heels. The crow's wearing pumps. Yeah. And has a, like a feathered wing, you know, like extended towards you. Mm -hmm. That crow's smoking a cigarette. Oh. That's a cigarette smoking I crow wearing, wearing pumps. That's a wow. street walking crow uh, in your neighborhood <laughs> stealing my bread. So that's a working crow. Yeah. <laughs> Basically... This poltergeist thing happens, and a state of mass hysteria descends across the countryside. Things are not right. This poltergeist event was not just Ninten's house, you know? Like, a lot of people are affected by this, and you get this in dialogue from the game. And the fact that you're fighting farmers like Wally and the hippies and so forth, and that when you beat them in battle, it says that they return to their senses. Like, these are people who... Maybe they're being perceived like by the game as like weaker minded people or something, people who have fallen under the influence of whatever's going on here. And when they talk about the zombies, uh, there's a woman in town that implies that like, you know, maybe someone or something is, is controlling them. the zombies themselves. They're not mindless, like speechless zombies. They talk. They antagonize you. They pretend to be normal people and attack you. Yeah. There's a normal human in town who can mistake you for a zombie. He asks, be honest, you're a zombie, aren't you? And if you say yes, he says oh, there's no cure for being a zombie, and then he runs away. But if you say no, he asks you, Are like... Are you human? Yeah. And then he says something that's, like, really 
this would have been so revolutionary in 1990 when this game would have come out in the States. He says, you see, don't tell anybody, but I'm so scared I, I wet my pants. Hmm. Which is which is my favorite line of dialogue in there. Wow. Body humor like that was unheard of in video games. Like, it's all over Earthbound, but it would have been nutso if that happened in 1990. But actually, you mentioned uh, Wally a little bit ago. Wally is actually my favorite enemy of this section of the game. Um, because it's just, I, I don't know, it was like so random. It's like you're out walking around and like here's this dude with his overalls and a pitchfork and he's just like, I don't like kids. We're going to fight now. And you just like <laughs> wallop the crap out of him. And then he comes back later and it's like you do it again. And it's like, you know, well, I just got beat up by a 12-year-old. I guess, uh, guess I'll go back to work in the fields now. Wally was probably already adversarial. And the fact that like something is going on screwing with people's brains uh, is, is just exacerbating what was already there. But we showed him. The Fable and Folly Network supports creators of exceptional audio stories, including the one you're listening to right now. If you love our shows, we want to hear from you. Complete our listener survey at fableandfolly.com slash survey. This will help us learn more about you, what you like, what you'd like to hear more of, and how we can maintain an inclusive, safe atmosphere. As a thank you for your participation, we have extras and behind-the-scenes content from your favorite shows. Fans make the network what it is. Thanks for listening, and we can't wait to hear from you. Find our listener survey at fableandfolly.com slash survey today. The first point of conflict, once you, you get out in the world, your dad says that, that like something's going on, you got to get your great-grandfather's diary, and, and so on and so forth. But like the first point of conflict is uh, a little girl's missing, Pippi. Right, yeah. So as part of the Mother Encyclopedia, there is a fold-out newspaper that happens to be in English. It's the only part of the thing that's in English. And it's called the Mother's Day Times because all of the town names are changed between the English and the Japanese versions. Podunk is called Mother's Day. Hmm. All the towns are named after holidays. Really? American holidays specifically. And I love this, and I'm really bummed out that they changed it in the English version. I think that it's, it's much more interesting as Mother's Day. Yeah. You can't win them all. But there's, there's a thing here. It says, uh, it's, a, it's an article on the front, the front page of the newspaper. Little Pippi Missing. A seven-year-old girl, Pippi, living in the suburb of Mother's Day, has not returned home since last Wednesday, and her parents have asked police to search for her. According to her mother, Lindgren, little Pippi was wearing a pink one-piece dress and yellow socks and tying her hair with a yellow ribbon when she left her house. The investigation has been progressing slowly, partly because Miss Lindgren has been quite upset, repeating what shall we do 256 times in response to the police inquiry. The only helpful clue so far is the report by a man who saw a little girl like Pippi at a South Cemetery. You can tell that this is not particularly ironclad English. Yellow socks found near the Chew Cream Zoo yesterday were not long and have since proved not to be hers. Because, of course, Pippi is a reference to Pippi Longstocking. So if the socks aren't long, then they ain't Pippi socks. <laughs> Here's something I think is interesting about Podunk. It seems like it's a slightly more metropolitan town than Onette is in Earthbound. It has a department store, for example. Like, maybe they're comparable in size. According to the encyclopedia, it's still kind of a small town. It was developed as a commuter town for people who work in the neighboring town of Thanksgiving. Now it's a popular tourist uh, city where the main industries are agriculture and sightseeing. The town's slogan is, let's make this a town that makes you want to whistle. Uh, and the town symbol is a red carnation, which are in the beds all throughout the town. And uh, your grandfather was a, uh, a newspaper man 
in Mother's Day. And yeah, and like the department store, like it's a tall building too. It's like there's like five levels to that thing. So yeah, this this appears to be a very a larger town than I would have assumed from the name Podunk. But the government is a mess. The mayor is crooked. He wants you to find the little girl so he'll look good for re-election. Yeah. Um, so he sends a 12-year-old to go to the cemetery where one child has already been presumed missing. Yeah. What does he think is going to happen? I guess he's less worried about the PR of another child missing. I don't know. Hey, kid, you've got a plastic bat and you know how you look like you know how to use it. And you're the hero of this game. So go solve this problem. But if it does work, you know, he gets to t- he's going to take the credit for it. That's true. The citizenry are not big fans of him, though. Uh, according to the encyclopedia, the uh, the citizens often say our taxes are so that the mayor can buy over and over replacement high class pillows for his afternoon nap. I guess, uh, you know, the question is, who is his opponent? And maybe we should be supporting them instead. Hopefully there's some cool upstart out there, like maybe like, oh, I don't know, Nintendo's mom. Yeah, she can run on a pizza platform. She's got my vote. <laughs> So one thing that I noticed, too, is I I was defeated a couple of times by the monsters. And it did this thing where the sort of game over screen was Ninten sitting in the center of the screen. There was a spotlight shining down on him. And it was basically asking, like, well, you got defeated. Are you going to get back up and start fighting again? Or do you want to give up? And it's a very interesting Game over screen, very similar to the one that's in Earthbound. Yeah. I never really kind of understood what to make of it. It's like, is this supposed to be literally like you've been defeated by this creature? You're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, facing death, and you're clawing your way back to life to continue the journey or or giving up. It's like, you know, so what's this screen all about? Um, I, I think that is more or less it. It's like a space inside your mind, maybe on the verge of death, maybe just like as you're like, you're blacking out or you're tired. It's an internal space where there's a force that like is one of the many fourth wall breaking forces of the game asking you from from beyond like, hey, kid, you're tired. Like, do you want to quit or do you want to keep going? And you know, if you say yes, it says Ninten return to the fighting scene. Pretty soon after that, I made it to the graveyard. Uh, which is where I stopped because that's where you told me to stop. So the, the graveyard where Pippi is like that's, um, according to the encyclopedia, uh, more than half buried or soldiers killed in action, but among them are also graves of martyred gangsters. Oh, that explains the gangster zombies. Yeah. Um, and also suggests like, you know, maybe because Podunk is more metropolitan, maybe Podunk or maybe or maybe the, the next town over, I don't remember what it's called in, in English, but let's say thanks Mother's Day and Thanksgiving, uh, maybe there's like a kind of like a Chicago-like kind of, you know, kind of vibe. Oh, yes, the Thanksgiving outfit. <laughs> Watch out for them. Yeah, they're going to put you to sleep with the Thanksgiving typewriter. Give you some gravy boat shoes. <laughs> <laughs> The first time I got killed was the first time I was fighting a zombie. And I was like, oh, okay, I've got to get back to leveling. There are times in Earthbound and Earthbound Beginnings where you do have to like actively grind. But I think if you're committed to exploring the region and you walk around, generally I've found that if you just do a good job of staying alive and fighting the enemies, you will just naturally get where you need to go in terms of trajectory. Yeah. I did start working towards a goal, though, because there was a a wooden bat at the department store. And I was like, I want to upgrade my weapon. 
So I fought until I got that $500 that I needed to get there, which didn't take too much. So I, I entered the graveyard at level six with a wooden bat. Well, I thought about going for the wooden bat, but I was in a hurry to get to the graveyard. My favorite piece of music, which I'll say in closing, is the, um, the overworld music, which is called Pollyanna, I Believe in You. It's a really fun, jaunty tune. And on the Mother album, it has uh, vocals sung by um, Catherine Warwick. I think when you when you listen to the album version, it really gives a sense of like Shigesato Itoi wrote a movie. Earthbound is a movie or a television series in the form of a Nintendo role playing game. And it has a book's worth of like background material and it has a soundtrack that's like professionally produced. And that wasn't uncommon at the time, like doing like special versions of soundtracks in Japan for video games. But there's a scope here. There's a scope and a gravity here that is what happens when you, when you give a creator carte blanche to create a world. It's probably a good thing for us to close out on here in this first episode, explaining a little bit more about who Shigesato Itoi is. He's a guy who at the time that he first ended up talking to Shigeru Miyamoto uh, at Nintendo, he was a famous copywriter. That is, someone who writes text on like posters. He was an actual celebrity in Japan for his use of words. So he was the guy who wrote the slogans on the posters for the Studio Ghibli movies. He also played the dad in My Neighbor Totoro. He's not normally an actor, but every now and then he does acting. And these slogans, the way that they were regarded, it's like he's a poet. It's like they're haikus. He had the a capacity to like create these simple statements that people found to be quite powerful, so much so that he got well-known for it. The most screen time that he's received in America is on Iron Chef. He was a reoccurring judge. He's an incredible writer, uh, a creator who's never been limited by any kind of medium. He's still working today and has a really interesting place in a lot of different you know, arts communities. And the Mother series is the biggest, weirdest project he's ever been a part of. But he was famous before it happened. He was like having a celebrity game writer. Then they said, okay, uh, cool, you can do that. At the time, the president of Nintendo was uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, and he wanted to support new talent in game design. So he was like, hey, uh, what if you made a company and I'll back it and you can make a game for Nintendo? And that's how Ape, the company that put out the first two games, was created. Ape got dismantled after Earthbound and became Creatures Incorporated, who co-developed Pokemon. Wowza. Hip Tanaka, who co-wrote the music, is currently the CEO of Creatures Incorporated. That's quite a link. <laughs> it's a link to the past <laughs> which is another game and another show there's there's a lot of interesting connections throughout all of all of earthbound and but all of it spirals back to uh the incredible creativity of shigesato itoi and his collaborators all of whom pull from the media that they love to create something truly unique in the form of this trilogy of games Something else that I noticed too is that in you know most RPGs when you defeat an enemy you collect gold off of them or loot or money or whatever. But Earthbound Beginnings does this a little bit differently. You don't really sort of accumulate money from defeating enemies, but rather you have an ATM card and your father puts money into your account that is based on the enemies that you're defeating or how much progress that you're making. Um, yeah. And so, you know, before you can get that money, you have to go find an ATM machine and withdraw it and then you can go spend it. 
you know, what's dad doing here? Is he just like in in the encyclopedia? He says the Earth's crisis will take money. I guess that's just his perspective on it. You know, he's there for you whenever you need him. Yeah. Uh, he wants to make sure that you've got the funds you need. But, uh, you know, dad wants to see you kick some ass. And if he kicks some ass, then he gives you money. So, sure. Okay. Well, who am I to argue? <laughs> it is strange, though. Like, where is he? What is he doing? Yeah. How is he keeping track of how many neighbors you're beating up? Yeah, I think it's because you're, you're, you're telling him. You oh. call him on the phone and you tell him. Oh, you tell him about what you did. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's weird because, you know, obviously we're doing this, this podcast, Mother She Wrote, but the one character that we can confirm that you're talking to all the time and literally telling them about what you're doing is calling your dad on the phone. But the game's called Mother, and the only, like, the biggest on-screen relationship that you have on an emotional level is, is with your mom, because your dad is just like, I don't know, it's, really, it's weird. It's a weird relationship. Well, that brings up a good point. Why is it called Mother? It's called Mother in that it's about the planet, the world we live in, and it's a sci-fi story, so the perspective of, of the planet itself is a rather important one. You know, when you zoom out to an astro level, then saving the world and seeing our world as it is is, is rather important. But the, the core reason, uh, and I don't have this quote in front of me right now, so I'm going to paraphrase, is um, there's a John Lennon song called Mother with the lyrics, Mother, you had me, but I didn't have you. And Shigesato Itoi said that he wanted to name the game Mother because he, he loved the, the, the heartache of John Lennon singing about the mom he never knew. Uh, the way he screams the word mother. He thought that word in isolation was extremely powerful and that's what he wanted to evoke with the title of his game. Wow. And that's the kind of depth that this series is about. That's the kind of cultural references and passion that are baked into even the most unassuming aspects of it. There's so much more than just what is presented on the surface level of this game. Like any good piece of art, learning more about it and discovering where it came from is also part of the art. And that's why we're doing this show. I'm Kat. I'm Jess. And that's all she wrote. Mother She Wrote is made possible thanks to the generous support of our Patreon producers, Becky Scott Fairley, Bob Hogan, CB, Joe Tank Riciardelli, Josh King, McDribble Deluxe, Mjolnir MK86, Patrick Webster, Sean Hutchinson, Sean T. Red, and our Super Deluxe executive Patreon producers, Big Bad Shadow Man, Marcus Larson, and Jamieson Lalone. You can join the team at patreon.com forward slash omniverse media. And if you think that Mother She Wrote is simply smashing, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcast player. This series is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida, and Louisville, Kentucky, on lands stolen from their indigenous people. The Tamuqua and Seminole, and Shawnee, Cherokee, Osage, Seneca Iroquois, Miami, Hopewell, and Adena. Acknowledgement of the first peoples of these lands and the lasting repercussions of colonization is just the beginning of the restorative work that is necessary. Through awareness, we can prompt allyship, action, and ultimately, decolonization. For links to aid indigenous efforts and to learn more about the First Nations of the land where you live, visit omniverse.media slash landback. Mother She Wrote is written, produced, and performed by me, Jessica Mudd. And me, Kat Blackard. 
Our original score is composed and performed by Jess, and this episode features additional voices by Doug Banks and Charlie Hondrick. Special thanks to Kinesu for his invaluable work translating the Mother Encyclopedia. Find a link to his translation, other media we referenced, and full episode transcripts at mothershewrote.earth. Mother She Wrote is not affiliated with Nintendo, Shigesato Itoi, or any rights holders of the Mother and Earthbound intellectual properties. Please play the game's official Nintendo releases. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. You start with your own breathing. Match the rhythm of the breeze that carves the canopy, the birds and bugs chirping in set intervals. Feel the subtle pulse rising up from the ground beneath you. To wander is to dance with the forest. But the forest isn't just the partner. She's the music, the style. She's the rhythm. She's the set of ancient steps and movements that have been passed down from one dancer to another. She teaches you to dance the dance she invented to the music she's singing in a tonal system she thought up one night as it pleased her. You breathe, and you listen, and you wait for your place. Your first step, the call to... is a new fairy folktale podcast from T.H. Ponders, a member of the Fable and Folly Network. Listen to the show by searching for The Wanderer in Apple Podcasts or by visiting www.callofthewander.com.